if you have a Bible tonight, let's open up to the book of Psalms, chapter 16. As tonight we're going to cover this amazing chapter uh, a lot here. Uh, there's that saying that, you know, the Bible is so deep that theologians will never touch the bottom. And uh, we're going to see that tonight uh, in Psalm chapter 16. Notice what we read in verse 1. It says, it's a miktam of David. He says, preserve me, O God, for in you I put my trust. O my soul, you have said to the Lord, you are my Lord. My goodness is nothing apart from you. As for the saints who are on the earth, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. Their sorrows shall be multiplied who hasten after another God. Their drink offerings of blood I will not offer, nor take up their names on my lips. O Lord, you are the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You maintain my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Yes, I have a a good inheritance. I will bless the Lord who has given me counsel My heart also instructs me in the night seasons. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be moved. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will rest in hope for you will not leave my soul in shield. Nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You will show me the path of life and your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. What a, a beautiful psalm. You know, we, we see here in the very beginning that this is a, a miktam of David. Now, a miktam is only found here in Psalm 56 through 60. So only a, a few times in the Bible. And this word in the Septuagint, which is the Greek version of the Old Testament, it refers to an, an inscription upon a tablet. How many of you here... You have like cement maybe that you poured in your backyard and you put your name in it. Any of you guys ever done stuff like that, you know? I know I do in my backyard. And, uh, and that's kind of what he's saying that a miktam is. It's something that's so valuable that you would engrave it upon a tablet for preservation. So it's kind of cool because all the Psalms are special. But this one is a miktam. This one, in one sense, is kind of super special. And so apparently David considered this psalm uh, uh, above and beyond. And and in this psalm, we're going to see that David is praying for protection, for God to guard and guide his life. And apparently, as we've seen many times in David's life, he is uh, in a dangerous situation. I remember one time I had a gang after me, you know, and they wanted to kill me. And so it's kind of like that. You know, Saul was after him and he wanted to kill him. Maybe this was the context. I don't know. But somewhere along the line, his life was in danger. And so notice what we read again there in verse one. He says uh, he, he prays, you know, preserve me, O God, for in you I put my trust. Other translations say, uh, Lord, keep me safe or protect me or watch over me. It's a prayer, and and in that prayer, it's almost as if David is holding to God's promise, and he's saying, Lord, here's the thing, you know, you promised that if I trust you, that you would protect me. 
And so he, he prays here, preserve me, O God, for in you I put my trust. You know, the Hebrew word translated trust here, it speaks of someone seeking refuge. It describes someone who runs to God for protection. And, and so David says, that in you I put my trust. It's something that we read nine times in the Psalms, you know. And as I was studying this out, uh, I had to ask myself that question. And I don't know if you've ever really sat down to ask God that question. Do you really trust God? Do you really trust God? The person that trusts God is the one that doesn't complain. They don't whine. They don't try to do things in the flesh. Uh, do you really trust God? Do you have a peace in your life, no matter what's going on? You see, this is what David is saying. Lord, this is me. Uh, and I had to ask myself, do I trust God to protect me? Do I trust God to direct me? I mean, in every way, physically, emotionally, spiritually. You know, the Bible says that famous verse, Proverbs 3, 5 and 6, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Remember? Trust in the Lord with all your heart. How many of you know it by, by heart? You guys know it, right? Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not to your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He shall direct your path, right? So the, the Bible tells us to trust Him with all of our heart. You know, do we trust God to direct us? Do we trust God to perfect us and protect us? Do we trust God with all of our heart, which basically means all the time, you know, it means in every situation, in, in anything that comes my way, in everything, no matter what it is, no matter who it is, no matter if it's me or my family or those to the ends of the earth, do you trust, do we trust God all the time? You know, years ago, a man was traveling through South Alabama. It was on one of those hot, humid days. And uh, he stopped at a watermelon stand. He picked up a watermelon and he asked the owner, how much, is it, how much does it cost? And the owner said, it's a dollar and ten cents. And so the man reached into his pocket and he says, all I have is a dollar. And so the owner said, that's okay, I'll, I'll trust you for it. And so the, the man said, well, that's mighty nice of you. And he goes and he gets his watermelon and he starts walking away. And so the owner says, hold on a second. Hold on a second. Where are you going? He says, well, I'm going to go and, and eat my watermelon. And he said, but you forgot to pay me. And the guy said, well, you said you would trust me. And then the owner said, well, I said I would trust you for a dime, not a dollar. <laughs> and, you know, sometimes I think that we trust God for, for, for dime but not a dollar. You know, I, I think, you know, sometimes we trust him or for some things we trust him. That's not enough. We must trust God for everything. That one day when you're there on your deathbed, and I don't know if it's going to happen that way. Who knows? You might, you know, get raptured. That would be so cool, but you just never know. You're there, and there, you know, you're dying, and, you know, you're minutes away from passing away, and you know... That you're going to heaven because you trust him. You see, this is such a big thing for us. We have to ask ourselves that question. Do I really trust the Lord? You know, I, I read this poem. It said, trust him though you fail and fall. Trust him though your strength is small. Trust him when to simply trust him seems to be the hardest thing of all. 
Trust him. He is always faithful. Trust him for his will is best. Trust him for the arms of Jesus are the only place to rest. Do you trust Jesus today? Man, I pray you know he loves you. He died for you on a cross. And if you believe in him, then you will be free, forgiven. The chains will be broken. And there is a home waiting for you in heaven. And there is a life on earth that you can't even begin to imagine. This is how it is when we trust the Lord. I don't know what you're going through, but I do know that no matter what it is, you can trust him. I think it would be cool if we all took like a deep breath and we said the same thing that David says right here. Lord, in you, I put my trust. You know, David here, he continues his conversation. Notice in verse 2, he, he says, Oh, my, my soul, you have said to the Lord, you are my Lord. You know, you guys probably know as you read the Bible that David does this every once in a while. Uh, he talks to himself. Do you guys ever do that? Do you ever talk to yourself? Come on, be honest, right? <laughs> All right, some of you are weird, but you know, it's a little bit is okay. You know, David here, he talks to himself. He reminds himself, uh, his soul, of something that he said to the Lord somewhere back in life. He had said to the Lord, Lord, you are my Lord. Now many of you know that there are two different Hebrew words translated Lord here in verse 2. When you see Lord and it's all capital letters, and that's in reference to God's personal name. And we don't know for sure what it is because the Jews wouldn't pronounce it. It may be Yehovah, it may be Yahweh, we don't know. Uh, we'll say Yahweh, I think that's probably the closest to it. You know, there's that word, but then there's the other word, Lord, or it's just a capital L, small, small O-R-D. And that in the Hebrew is the word Adonai. And it's in reference to someone who has power over another person. You know, a, a Lord is the master, you know, the ruler of my life, the one who has a final say, final authority over me, right? And, and here David tells Yahweh, I yield to your way. Lord. You are my Lord. And, I, and I, I just pray you guys know how critical this is that we do this, that we crown him king over our life, that we wholeheartedly agree to do our absolute best to let God call the shots, to give God the keys and let him drive, that, that our soul would seriously say to Yahweh, you can have your way all the way I choose the highway to heaven and not hell. Lord, that you can lead my life because I know that you love me. You know, why wouldn't you put your hand in Jesus' nail-scarred hands, the one who died for you on the cross, why would you not follow him? You know, in the Old Testament, we don't really know for sure how to pronounce the personal name of God but as the revelation continued throughout history, we traveled then to the New Testament, and there we see that the name of God is crystal clear. It's over in Acts chapter 4, verse 12. There's no other name higher than his name. Whose name? Jesus, right? Jesus' name. 
In Philippians 2, 10 and 11, it gives us the key. And it says there that every knee will bow and tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, we know his name. His name is Jesus. And what we need to do is make Jesus the Lord of our life. And this is how we're saved. And this is the only way we can then work out our salvation. You know, a lot of these things you've heard before. You've heard that you're supposed to trust God. And you heard that he's supposed to be Lord. And so you're like, well, well how does this work? And then this is how it works. He keeps pounding it deeper and deeper and deeper inside your heart. To where finally, it's kind of like you're digging, you're digging in a well, and then finally it goes deep enough and it just springs this water. Do you really trust God? And is he completely the Lord of your life? This is how we're saved. But this is also how we're sanctified. This is how we're saved, but this is also how we work out our salvation. In Romans chapter 10 in verse 9, right? It says that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. In Acts chapter 16, when they asked uh, the Philippian jailer, asked Paul, how am I supposed to get saved? You know, it says there in Acts 16, 31, so they said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. You know, it's not just while he's Savior. He's also got to be Lord. You've got to confess that with all your heart. I like what one guy said, Peter Forsyth. He was right when he said, the first duty of every soul is to find not its freedom, but its master. Have you found your master in life? You know, these are some really heavy questions and I had to grapple with them. So now you guys have to, okay? (laughs) You know, do I really trust the Lord with all my heart and everything and anything that life might throw my way? And do I really have Jesus Christ as the Lord of all my life? Because the truth is, if he's not Lord of all, then he's not Lord at all. You can't say, well, this is what I give to God, but in the dark I do this. Then he's not Lord and you're in trouble. You can't say, well, I go to church and, you know, I'm sure that's good enough. No. Does he call the shots? Does he rule your life? We don't play church. We're serious. You know, there are those who go to church who claim to be Christians and think what they want to think. And they say what they want to say and the way they want to say it whenever they want to say it. And they do whatever they want to do. And sometimes it even clearly conflicts with the commandments of God. And then they ask him for forgiveness. And and by the way, they say, thank you for being Lord of my life. No, he's not Lord of your life. If you think what you want to think and say what you want to say whenever and however you want to say it and do whatever you want to do, even though you know it's wrong. When Jesus is Lord of your life, there's a different change. You know, something's wrong with that picture, that profession. You guys, I just want to encourage you because I love you. Be so careful. Be very careful. And I don't want to happen to you what Jesus said in Matthew 7 and 21 and 23. So not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father 
in heaven. You know, many will say to me in that day, think about that, in that day they're standing before Christ, in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out many demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I, Jesus said, I will declare to them, depart from me. I never knew you, you who practice lawlessness. Think about that. That's why Jesus asked that question in Luke 6, 46. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do the things which I say? See, we got to come to that place where we trust him. We put our trust in him. We have to come to that place in our life where we say, Lord, you are Lord, and really mean it. Please don't misunderstand me. I know, and I want you to know that we're saved by by grace, uh, through faith, and, you know, that's how we get saved. And, you know, we got to know that. But we, here's the thing, we, we prove we're saved when there's a change in my life and there's love and obedience to God. And that's what we're reading here. Does that mean that a Christian can't struggle and we never fall short? Of course not. You know, I know all about the struggle. Right? And probably you do too, right? And I fall short sometimes. But, you know, we need to learn our lessons from falling. Imagine if you fell down in the same pit, you know, over and over again. Let's just say there was a hole here in the middle of the aisle. And every time, you know, you put your foot in it and you kept falling over in the same, you know, wouldn't that, wouldn't that be weird? That'd be kind of weird, you know. <laughs> and it's like, okay, you know, so you fell. You've you got to learn your lesson. That's what Christians do, right? They learn. They grow. Christians can fall. And even Peter failed in this area. If you can remember, after God had filled him with the power of the Holy Spirit, he was used by God in such a mighty way. You read it in the book of Acts. But one day, God told him to rise and eat. And he responded, if you remember, by saying, Not so, Lord, in the book of Acts, chapter 10 and verse 14. And so there's a little bit of confusion there. Not so, Lord. Doesn't make any sense, huh? But that's how some people are. Not so, Lord. <laughs> that, doesn't, that doesn't work. And I remember reading a story about Dr. Graham Scrogi, who was a respected pastor and author in London years ago. And he was speaking about these things and uh, the Lordship of Christ. And after the close of the service, he was approached by a young lady who was a professing Christian and she was stirred up by his message on lordship and she couldn't bring herself to that point of absolute surrender. And so Dr. Scrody asked her, he said, why don't you yield? And she said, well, I'm afraid if I have to, then, you know, there'll be two things that'll change in my life. Number one, I played the piano in the concert hall and I fear that I'd have to give it up. And secondly, she said, if I really made Jesus Lord of my life, he might call me to be a missionary to China. And I want to go to China, you know. <laughs> and so, you know, opening up his Bible to Acts 10, 14, Dr. Scrogi explained to the young woman the absurdity of, of Peter's answer that we just read. He said, listen, a slave never dictates. And to say not so with the word Lord is not just confusion it's an illusion. It's a delusion. If that's your life, not so, Lord, then you don't know him. And, and you know, if you're a Christian, then it's just got to go deeper, deeper, every thought, every word. You're watching television and you're checking out the chicks. 
Well, it's PG-13. Yeah, but look at all that cleavage that you're soaking in. I mean, why? I mean, you know, there's a lot of things that we could talk about here that people compromise in. And if the Holy Spirit is convicting you, then why are you still doing it? You know, the Lord says, you know, jump. And, and we say how high. That's how life should be for us as Christians. You know, when she, you know, was confronted with what Dr. Scroge asked her, he opened up his Bible and he showed her the passage. And then he said to her, I want you to make a decision right here, right now. Which words will you cross out? Will you cross out the word Lord or not so? And so he handed her the pen and then he walked away. And there she was. This is a true story for two hours, just struggling there in her life. Will I follow Christ? Will I allow him to have all of my heart and be Lord of my life or not? Or will I hold to my sin? And for two hours, she was there struggling with that. And so finally, when she came to her decision, what happens is, He wanted her to make the right decision and she struggled and then he returned to find a tear-stained page where the words not so were crossed out. And with a lovely light in her eyes, she finally left and went home, repeating those words over and over, Lord, Lord, you are my Lord. No longer would she dictate her decisions or have her way with her words. She had now chosen to be a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we have to do that when we start our life as Christians. And sometimes we have to do that even as Christians. Who sits on the throne of your heart? I pray it would be Jesus. And so we're looking at this psalm, and it's heavy stuff. You know, I think this is why it's a mikdam. It's a revelation, I think, of salvation. Because as I was looking at this, I said, Lord, these are things that that really determine whether or not we're saved. And this is kind of how we get saved. You know, we've got to trust Him as Savior. We've got to see Him as Lord. But then look at verse 2. He says there again in verse 2, Oh, my soul, you have said to the Lord, you are my Lord. Notice what he says. My goodness is nothing apart from you. Amen. Amen. Some of you guys looking in the mirror, you're like, amen, Lord. I, I." (laughs) you know, it's funny how when you talk on, you know, the streets and people out there think they're pretty good. I'm pretty good. Here David is saying, my goodness is nothing apart from you. I think you guys know better when you know the Bible that apart from God, you know, we might play the part, but we're eventually going to fall apart because the best of men are men at best. Men, you're just men. We're imperfect. We fall short. To say that the best of men are men at best is not saying a lot of good. It's saying a lot of bad. As a matter of fact, Isaiah chapter 64, verse 6, it says that the best we can do, the best any man can do is filthy rags before God. That's the best that we can do. And so David here, he mentions this, and this is just as important as the other things, and you might wonder why. And here's why. Because this is the first step to salvation. 
When you realize that your goodness is nothing apart from God. When you realize that if you were to die today, you would go to hell because heaven is a place for perfect people and we fall short of the glory of God. And when you realize that, then you cry out to God in desperation. You see, and that's what's going on here. This is the first step. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 5 and verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Don't feel bad. I'm not trying to, to push you down because, you know, I'm worse than most of you, definitely. But, you know, um, when you realize how much you need the Lord, then you run to him, right? I mean, this is a place, not, it's not a, a museum for saints. It's a hospital for sinners. It's just one beggar telling another beggar where to get bread. Right. And what he's saying right here is my, my goodness is nothing apart from you. We we can't earn it. We can't. We need the goodness of God. Right. You probably heard that story about the man who dies and goes to heaven and the angels meet him at the pearly gates. And so the angel says, OK, buddy, here's how it works. You need to earn 100 points to make it into heaven. So tell me all the good things that you did while you lived. And I'll give you a certain number of points for each item, depending on how good it was. And when you reach or if you reach 100 points, then you get into heaven. Okay, the man said, I attended church every Sunday for 50 years. That's good, said the angel. That's worth two points. Two points. He says, okay, well, I gave 20% of all my earnings to God. And the angel looks at his book and he says, okay, that's another two points. Did you do anything else? He says, two points, golly. Okay, well, how about, about this? I started a soup kitchen in my city and worked in the shelter for the homeless. And the angel says, wow, that's awesome. That's another two points. <laughs> and the man said, I was married to the same woman for 50 years and I stayed faithful to her even in my heart. And the angel says, well, that's a big one. That's three points. <laughs> And then the man cried, at this rate, the only way I'm going to get into heaven is by the grace of God. And at that point, the angel flung the door wide open. And he said, come on in. Right? Because that's the only way we're going to make it. Our goodness, apart from him, is nothing. But he died on a cross for us. And he made him who knew no sin to become righteousness for us. Right? That we might become the righteousness of God. When you place your faith in Christ, he covers you with his righteousness. And when God looks at you, he sees no sin. You're forgiven when you come to Christ. And what I see right here in looking at this psalm is, is that David here is just talking about how to establish a relationship with the Lord. You trust him. As Savior, you crown him as Lord. You realize that your goodness is nothing apart from him and it never will be. If there's anything good about you, eventually God does something good in your life. And you look at someone like Billy Graham and you're like, well, look at Billy Graham. Look at everything he did. He's a good man. Yes, he was a good man. Barnabas is also described in the Bible as a good man. But it wasn't Barnabas and it wasn't Billy. It was God working in that man. And that's why we should never glorify men because 
It's God. But God can do a work and God saves you. And I think when I read this psalm right here and I read those first three points, I'm like, well, that's, what, that's what's up right here, man. That's what David's talking about. And then the rest of it is about how to enjoy your relationship with God. First relationship, then, and then fellowship. And we're going to run through these real quick. Look at verse 3. As for the saints, and that's just the, the Christians, okay? This is not... You know, someone who's canonized. This is someone who's saved. As for the saints who are on the earth, they are the excellent ones in whom is, is all my delight. You know, what's the first thing that happens to you when you get saved? You know, it is that you start in that fellowship with God's people, right? And that's what David is saying right here. Now that we've established a relationship with God, now comes my relationship with the saints. And what it is, is kind of cool right here. He even says, I delight in them. I delight in them. How many of you here, you hate coming to church because of the people? Just out of curiosity. <laughs> then you're in trouble, man. You know, well, what about that person? Ah, you know what? They get under my skin. Well, you better start loving them. Because that's what David says. They're saints. They're covered. They're They're clean. I delight in them. I love to be with them. I love them. And that's what happens to Christians. In John chapter 13, 34 and 35, Jesus said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all will know that you are my disciples if you have the mupper sticker. If you got the t-shirt. If you go to church. If you say you're a Christian, if you're involved in ministry, know the way that you know whether or not the person is really saved is whether or not they love the brethren. See? And that's what David's saying here. You know, 1 John 4, 7 and 8, it says, Beloved, let us love one another. For love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God. Let me ask you a question. And we're talking about these things today. Do you trust God? Is he the Lord of your life? Do you know your goodness is nothing apart from him? And let me ask you a question. Do you love people? These are important questions. Someone says, come on, Manny. You know, don't you know that saying, you know, to live above with saints we love. Oh, it will be such glory, but to live below with saints we know. Now, that's a different story. Don't you know that one? You know, I know the saying, but the saying doesn't supersede the scriptures. To live below with saints you know, you better grow in love with them. See, and, and this is just worship. It's 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 first relationship and then fellowship and then the rest of the psalm is worship. And you guys know by now that if you wanted to, you can dive deep into all these verses, right? But we're not going to be able to tonight because we're going to King Taco afterwards, <laughs> right? And so verse 4, he says, their, their sorrows shall be multiplied who hasten after another God. They drink offerings of blood I will not offer nor take up their names on my lips. You know, when you get saved, you love the, the saints and then you're real careful with who you hang with. You know, you, you realize that you're called out of the world. I know the sorrows of sin. I know the calamity of idolatry. And so, Lord, in my worship of you, I'm not going to go near that stuff. 
In verse 5, O Lord, you are the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You maintain my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Yes, I have a good inheritance, you know. And, and I just love the way that he says my portion is God. And, and in one sense, he's the king of my cup. Whatever you've been forced to drink, God is sovereign over that. Praise God for that. You know, he's the Lord of the lot in your life. And wherever the lines are, whatever the boundaries have been, wherever you were born, wherever you live, whatever's happened to you, it's all part of God's beautiful plan in your life. And you hear, you know, David is just thanking God for these things. These are my boundaries, Lord, and they're, and they're absolutely beautiful. Verse 7, I will bless the Lord who has given me counsel. My heart also instructs me in the night seasons. I mean, when you look at this right here, you know, he's king of the cup, but he's also the counselor of your life. I mean, aren't you grateful? You know, thank you, Lord. You know, for us, thank you, Lord, for the word in my hand. Thank you, Lord, for even your word in my heart that there I am in the night seasons when life is difficult and you speak to me. In my heart, I mean, the, the great counselor who he is, even when things just don't seem right in the night and in those disappointments of life, that I would rather counsel, you counsel me, you encourage me, you strengthen me, you direct me. And Lord, I, I praise you for that. That's what he says there in verse 7. I will bless the Lord. I, I praise the Lord. You know, verse 8 is interesting. It says, I have set the Lord always before me. And, and what that means, the NIV captures this critical practice for us as Christians. It says, I keep my eyes always on the Lord. You know, and that's where we need to keep our eyes, right? If you look at yourself, what's going to happen? You're going to be depressed. If you look at the world, you're going to be distressed. But if you look at the Lord, you're going to be blessed. Keep your eyes on the Lord. He loves you. And through his help, his sovereign help, you will walk on water. I'm excited with what God's doing in this church. I am so blessed. You know, I'm not saying that you don't have trials. But I've noticed that even those that are going through the hard times, God's using you. And you're glorifying him. You're on your way to heaven. It's the best place to be. I will set my eyes. I will set the Lord always before me. And he says right there, and I'll never be moved. You know, you look at that and then that's the key, right? I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be moved. A lot of times Christians even get moved. The purposes and plans of their life. No, I'm going to keep my eyes on the Lord. You know, Psalm 25 in verse 15, my eyes are ever always told the Lord for he shall pluck my feet out of the net. And there's the devil himself trying to take you down. But because your eyes are on the Lord, God's going to bring you safely to him. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. I love the passage. It says, therefore, we also, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking unto Jesus, and in the Greek it says, fixing your eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the same shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. 
You know, that passage is cool. Because when Jesus was hanging on the cross, when he was there suffering for our sins, bearing the wrath of God, he had a joy in front of him. And what was that joy? It was you and me in heaven. He saw you. He saw you. Love kept him nailed to the cross because he saw you. And as he saw you, he was able to finish his race. And if we see him, then we'll be able to finish ours. You see how it works? Keeping our eyes on the Lord. You know, and then he closes in verse 9 through 11. Therefore, my heart is glad and my, my glory or my tongue rejoices. My flesh also will rest in hope. For you will not leave my soul in shield, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You will show me the path of life. And in your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures. Forevermore. Let me tell you something. Those pleasures right there, that's better than Disneyland. Because I know the world that we live in, oh, the pleasures, the pleasures, oh yeah, that's the vacation, huh? No, there are greater things than that. You know, when you look at this, it's just so beautiful the way it closes. In verse 9 through 11, is actually quoted in Acts 2 as a prophecy of the resurrection of Christ and how. You know, Jesus' body did not decay, right? And so it was a prophecy regarding the fact that he would rise from the dead. But, uh, you know, looking at that, you, you can't take away from that because at the end of the day, he is the only one who could be called the Holy One. So that's definitely about Jesus. But here's the thing. This is the way that the Bible works, that it also has a meaning for David. And it meant that he knew, for him, it meant that he knew that he wouldn't die that day, that God was going to protect him, that God would then preserve him through this season he was going through and keep him on the path of life. And he was glad and rejoiced. Whatever the trial that you're going through right now, God's going to pull you through. God's going to preserve you. God's going to protect you. You know, when I, when I read this, again, when I read verse 11, and it's such a beautiful verse, it sounds a lot like heaven. I mean, doesn't it sound like heaven? Read it again in verse 11. You will show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. I mean, isn't heaven going to be awesome where chorizo is good for you? <laughs> At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. I mean, to me, that sounds a lot like heaven. And it is, and it's how it will be one day. But it's also descriptive of how it could be today. Because that's the way it works for us as Christians, for those who are saved, who trust Jesus, who love him as Lord and by grace have grabbed hold of his goodness. Let me tell you something, man. Life on earth is beautiful. I'm not saying you're not going to go through hard times. You will. But you're going to find that during those hard times, Jesus will carry you. Jesus will hold you. Jesus will cry with you. Jesus will keep you close to him. And what we find is that, you know, God's life, it doesn't start when we go to heaven. It actually, when does everlasting life start? When does eternal life start? It starts the moment you give your life to Christ. 
right? The moment you give your life to Christ, it, it starts now and then it goes on forevermore. And so let me ask you a question as we close today. Are you living that life? Are you living that life of supernatural Holy Spirit power and love and victory and peace and joy and passion? And God's using you. God's working in you. God's working through you. God's making you like his son. Are we living that life? You know, this psalm right here, it kind of tells us that we can. And how? How does it all start? Well, it all starts with God's love. And I believe in my heart that it continues with that love. You know, that we know God's love for us and we reciprocate that back to him. I pray that we would do that today. It's not complicated. It's not a religion. God loves you. Give your life to Him. Come to Him just as you are. A lot of times people say, well, no, I don't want to be a Christian, man, because, you know, I got these issues and these hang-ups and I got these addictions. I did too when I gave my life to Christ. He'll come. He'll clean you up. He'll give you strength. Don't wait until you clean up your life because you can't. Only he'll be able to do that for you. It's all about this amazing love that God has for us. Let me close with this story. You guys probably heard of that woman who died after a long illness. And she arrived at the gates of heaven. And while she was waiting to get in, she peeked through the gates. And she saw the beautiful banquet table of heaven. And sitting all around the table were her parents and all the other people that she had loved and gone on before her. And so they saw her and they were so excited. And they said, we've been waiting for you. It's so good to see you. And so at that point, an angel then appeared to the woman and said to her, here, this is a, a, a situation to where the angel said, I mean, she said to the angel, this is such a beautiful place. How do I get in? And then the angel said, you just have to spell one word. And and she said, what word? And uh, the angel said, love. And so the woman said, well, that makes sense. And then she went on to spell the word love, L-O-V-E. And the angel then welcomed her into heaven. So about six months later, the angel came to the woman and asked her to watch the gates while he took a break. And so while the woman was there guarding the gates of heaven, her husband arrived. And and she said, wow, I'm surprised to see you here. How how have you been? (laughs) And he, and he said, actually, I've been doing good since you died. I married the beautiful young nurse that, who took care of you while you were ill. And then I won the lottery. I sold the house, bought a big mansion, and my new wife and I have been traveling the world. We were on vacation, and it just so happens that I went water skiing today, and I took a terrible fall. The ski hit my head, and here I am. So how do I get in? And the lady said, it's simple. You only have to spell one word. And her husband said, what? And she said, Czechoslovakia. (laughs) How many of you here could spell Czechoslovakia? (laughs) No, aren't you grateful that it's not Czechoslovakia? I'm grateful that the way into heaven is love. It's love. He loved me. He died for me. And when that hits home, it changes your life.
Today we get to have communion. We get to celebrate that love. And so I pray that if you don't know the Lord, that today you would give your life to him. And for the rest of us who are Christians, just studying these things out, let's examine our life. I pray we would trust him and make him Lord more than ever before. Acknowledging that our goodness is nothing apart from him, but his goodness, it really does make us accepted.